I'll turn, please, to 1 John in chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, uh, please. I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 13 through the end of this, uh, of this chapter. By the way, I don't know if I announced that the service tonight will be live-streamed as well. I suppose there'll be a link or something that goes out to help you get a hold of that, but I wanted to make sure you knew that as well. So 1 John in chapter 5, please. Could I just, for habit's sake, a good habit's sake, for me, I think a good habit is every time we open the Bible, we bow to pray. So even though I just prayed, we pray as we open the scripture. Father, be with us now as we come to your word. Let us, as we sang a moment ago, hear your voice. And may your voice, this voice that called into being all that is, would powerfully work in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want, if God will help me, uh, to take up, beginning with verse 18, probably to just verse 20 this morning, We've considered what is before already, and we'll pick up the last verse perhaps next week. But this, these verses, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we're in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true and eternal life. When I was a kid, growing up in western Pennsylvania, I had a neighbor. He would, when he saw me, would always say to me, what do you know? Really, it'd come out as, what do you know? And that always baffled me as a kid. I didn't know how to answer him. I mean, did he really want me to tell him everything I knew? Uh, did he want me to say, I see you standing there? Because I'd already said hi. Did he want me to say, I know who you are? Because he knew I knew who he was. He was my best friend's dad, Mr. Marcus. Um, did he want me to tell him the score of the Pirates game the night before? I could. I mean, I could tell him that and how many hits Roberto Clemente had. But everybody knew that. So I said nothing. I mean, literally, I said nothing. He said, what do you know? I said, Nothing which then I realized was a bad thing to say because then he'd keep asking me, 
what do you know until I actually knew something? Now, if John, the apostle, asked you, what do you know? He'd want you to say, I know I have eternal life. So that's why, that's why he wrote. He, he, he wrote the gospel so that we would come to know Jesus. In the gospel of John, uh, we realize his purpose statement in chapter 20, verse 30. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this gospel that he writes is evangelistic in initial, at least, intent. He wants people to know who Jesus is so that they would believe in him, so that they would come to have life in him. And then when he writes his epistle, he moves from that, if you will, the truth of the gospel, and he wants people to have assurance about that. We notice in verse 13 of chapter 5, his purpose statement here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You already believe um, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so all these months as we've been working our way through 1 John, we've said what John's intent is to give us assurance because that's valuable to us, even we could say crucial to us as believers in Jesus. Um, it was crucial for the people to whom he wrote because there had been some heretics there who couldn't affirm the profession of faith that we made this morning concerning Jesus. And so the question in their minds is, are we really true believers? And John wanted to assure them that they really were. And this assurance is helpful to us in prayer. In fact, one of the key um, applications that John has for assurance is having confidence in prayer that God really does hear us because we, we know that we belong to him so that when we pray to him, we, we, we know that he'll hear us and that he'll answer us. Um, having assurance is important for our obedience because John and all the writers of the scripture call us to obedience. And since obedience can be costly in this world, we need courage and we'll have courage to obey when we know that we know that we belong to God and for our contentment, for our, our peace of mind, to know that we really are children of God. To know that Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That we know that all things have purpose and the purpose of God for all things in our lives is to conform us to the image of Christ and to, to bring us to glory and to glorify us. So, so to have this assurance is to, to live um, knowing that and to live knowing that we have eternal life. I was reflecting recently at a graveside that when I was a kid, pardon the reminiscing this morning, when I was a kid, I was taught to pray before I went to sleep, this little prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die, now, that's a fascinating thing to teach a kid right before he's going to sleep. 
with all the monsters under your bed already. But if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. But really, what a comforting thing. What a comforting thing to know that I'm going to close my eyes and not be aware of anything until I wake up. But what if I don't? To know that if I don't wake up, I'm alive in the presence of the Lord. What a great thing to know. So John wants us to have assurance. And so, as you remember, it's been a few weeks since we've talked about this, so I wanted to bring this back to your minds. You remember that he gives, if we could say, three ways to think about that, or some people have said three tests. First, there's this doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus? We've got to believe the right things about Jesus, else we can't have any real assurance that we belong to God, because we belong to God through the work of Christ, through Jesus. And secondly, the question that he asks is, well, how do you see your faith in Jesus worked out in, in your life, in obedience, yes, to desire to follow him, and in love for each other, because that was his commandment. So if you belong to him, you should be able to see this in your life. And it's been gratifying to me, as I've heard from many of you, that on the one hand, some of you who've been struggling with assurance all your life have found great assurance as you've thought this through. Yes, I do believe. Yes, I do desire to follow him. I see his work in my life, and I I do love his, his people. And others of you have been challenged to ask that question, do I really believe? But you know, I would think that after having done all that, John would be done, but he's not. There's something else he wants to add to all of this. It's consistent with it, but he wants to make sure that, that, that we get this as, as well. And I would say these last few verses are kind of John's linchpin, you know, that little, that little pin that holds the wheel on, holds all things together so that nothing falls apart. It's that one little extra last pin you put in in order to make sure that it all holds together. And I think this is, metaphorically speaking, John's linchpin in our assurance because he keeps asking the question, if you will, what do you know? Verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not, does not, does not touch him. Now, when he says we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, John has already discussed that in chapter 3, beginning with verse 4 through verse 10. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or, or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who doesn't love 
his, his brother. Now we know, because we spent some time in that passage, we know that John doesn't mean that because we're believers that we'll never sin again. This idea, as it's translated here, doesn't continue to practice sinning, keep on, that sinning isn't that which defines your life, that you don't wake up in the morning anymore thinking or even either actively or passively about sinning, about rebelling against God, but rather you wake up in the morning with a heart's desire to follow him, to, to do that which pleases him. Um, and we understand that, that this new birth that we've had as children of God is to bring a new behavior. One commentator put it like this. He said, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live in harmony. And we take some comfort, at least I do, in realizing that now when I sin, at least my sensitivity to it has increased. My desire to confess and repent has increased. There seems to be less time between when I sin and when I confess than before. And I even see the triumph of the gospel and the triumph of the spirit at work in my life by his word to enable me to please him. But I have to say that when I read this, I'm, it still unnerves me because I know this sin in my life. It still unnerves me. And so this linchpin is this. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Now John's been saying, you can know, you can have assurance, but because you walk with the Lord, but because you obey him, because you love as he has commanded to love. And, and that rings true in our lives. And I trust we can see it. But, but then he wants to say, but, but remember this, that the Lord is looking out for you. Remember this, as he puts it, um, he who is born of God, that is Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And even I read that, I go, but what do you mean doesn't touch him? I mean, would Job say that? I mean, it doesn't touch him? And this little word, touch, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used... You remember when Mary Magdalene came and saw Jesus after he had resurrected and, and she grabbed a hold of him and he said, don't cling to me. Don't embrace me. Don't grab a hold of me. And then that's the sense here of this touch. It isn't just a little tap on the shoulder. It isn't just a little rub on the head. It, it's, it, it's, it, he doesn't cling to us. He doesn't embrace us. We, he, we, we can't become again in his grasp because Jesus uh, protects us. One commentator said this. He said he can tempt us. He can even entice us in our folly to fall into acts of sin. But never again will we be held by him. Redemption cannot be undone. We've been delivered. We've been set free. We belong to Christ and we are children of God. We belong to the heavenly family. And though in our weakness and frailty, we may often listen to Satan and his insinuations and suggestions. But let us never forget that great word of God. That wicked one will never get us back 
He will never cling to us, never embrace us. That's why Jesus could say, no one, nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hand. That's good to hear after reading through this, this letter. Peter writes in 1 Peter and uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at this time. This one you should know. Now to him, he was able to do what? To keep you from falling. And do what? And present you blameless. Where? Before his glorious presence. And that with great joy. Our only God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory dominion, majesty, and power. I quote those in a different order than in your Bible because that's how I memorized them somehow as a kid when our pastor was giving that benediction. (laughs) I can't change. He keeps us, you see. He keeps us. And how does he do that? Well, the risen Lord Jesus does that by interceding for us, by by praying for us. I hope that when you get up in the morning, sometime early in the day, I, I would encourage you to have this happen in your first steps out of bed, for you to realize that the Lord Jesus is actively, has been through the night and is in that day, interceding, praying, if you will, speaking your name and mine, in heaven, so that we would be kept. I hope you, you think about that early on in every day. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 7.25. He says, consequently, that is because he lives forever, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We must realize that as long as Jesus lives, we're safe from the evil one. If he ever ceases to live, we're in big trouble. But the good news is he's alive and he always lives. And he lives always to pray for us, to keep our name alive in heaven that we would be safe from the evil one. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Don't ever forget that, please. Your darkest moment 
Remember that Jesus is alive and he's in the holy place, the holy of holies, appearing there on our behalf. Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 10. For, what, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He reconciled us to God. He's not going to leave us hanging. He continues to intercede for us, to pray for us. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I mean, who can bring a charge against us when Jesus, the one who died for us, is interceding for us? We must really know that for to have assurance. And we have the picture of Jesus praying. Turn to John chapter 17. So the picture of Jesus praying, and because he did pray, and this was the night that he was betrayed, he was on his way to be arrested, and he prays, verse 11 in John 17, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one even as we're one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We mustn't worry. We must know. We must know. Have assurance on the basis of what? Yes, we can see it in our lives. We believe, we, we obey, we, we love. But we know that we'll be kept. Why? Because Jesus will make sure, as he intercedes for us, that we are indeed kept. And, and we know that he hears and, and he answers our prayers. So he prays for us and, and we pray as well. He's taught us to pray. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It could be translated and has in various places, deliver us from the evil one. So it teaches us, Something about prayer that he's interceding for us and we join him in that prayer. We know our weakness. And so we join with the Lord Jesus and say, well, 
deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus gives us great um, encouragement to pray. You know, I, I suppose that if you ever ask a group of people, what, what do you want to hear about at a retreat or something like that? Very often, if it's a theological matter, very often people say, well, teach about prayer. I mean, there's this insatiable desire to know more about prayer. And I smile when I hear that because I venture to say that with all the books that are written, none of us really understands all of the ins and outs about praying. Why God would want to hear from us when he's the sovereign one and the wise one. Why God would want to hear from us when, when he's the one who should direct all things. It would be scary for me if I prayed and I heard a voice from God saying, hadn't thought of that. Thanks so much, Bill. I think I'll do that, right? So we know all that, but yet the scripture assumes, even commands that we, that we pray. And so I, when I think about praying, I kind of close my mind to all my questions and I come back to the passages that encourage me to pray so that I'll pray and not worry about it, not question it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And Jesus is saying, as you know, the verb tense here is a present. And it says, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. He says, keep after all the time praying. The Lord is interceding for us that we be kept. He says, now you pray too. You pray too and have assurance that I will, in fact, hear your prayers. John chapter 14. By the way, I know what time it is and I will not finish these three verses. So just relax. John chapter 14. Um, and verse 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in his Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And we can have all kinds of questions about that, I suppose. But I know this. If Jesus is praying something, then I can really pray it too. And I can have confidence that if Jesus is praying it, then my praying it is a good thing, and the Lord will hear me through him. Pray that you will be kept, that your faith will be made Strong. In John chapter 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Jesus is talking about love here, talking about obedience. One of the tests, if you will, that gives us assurance. If Jesus is praying that we be kept if Jesus is praying that we walk with him, then we can pray that too. And we must. And we should. Chapter 15, verse 16. It says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you, you, could, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you would love one another. If Jesus is praying, then we can pray. 
to that. We'll see this fruit in our lives of obedience and, and of love. And then in chapter 16, verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive that your joy may be full. We can bring us greater joy than to live a life that's pleasing to him. We know that Jesus is praying that. Join him. Let's pray that too, and thus have assurance that we will be with him. In fact, John, in his epistle, in First John, a passage we Uh, considered a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5 and verse 14. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Now, I, I know it could be tricky answering this question, what's really in the will of God for us to pray? But I know this answer is a right one, that we be kept from the evil one. And I know it's a right one because that's what Jesus is praying. And so pray it. Pray it. And pray it with the assurance that he hears and answers. Pray it with the assurance then that you belong to him and will belong to him and your faith will not fail. He hears the prayers of each of us for each other. We talked about this too a few weeks ago in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins and do not, that do not lead to death. <coughs> the point here is that when we see each other in sin, of all the other things that we might need to do in that circumstance, we mustn't do any of those other things before we pray. And we know that it's in the Lord's will that we walk with him. And so as we pray, we're praying along with Jesus that this brother, this sister will be kept. And so we need to pray. That's how Jesus keeps us, even through his keeping. He keeps us by his word. We know this in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so as we hear the scripture, it comes to us to give us grace, to strengthen us, so that we can walk with him. We mustn't ever neglect hearing his word preached. We mustn't ever neglect the reading of his scripture. We must never neglect the meditation upon it, the study of it. Why? Because this is a way through which the Lord keeps us. It's the means by which he keeps us. And then his church in Ephesians 4, he says he gives gifts to his church. We must be part of the church to receive from these gifts that we may be able to grow up in love. And he gives us sacraments, baptism, and communion. There's a great story told of Martin Luther, although like most Luther stories, it may not be true. But Luther was just one of those guys that attracted stories because many of them were true and they're always amazing. But the story of Luther is that when he was tempted very often, he could be heard shouting at the devil, I'm a baptized man. 
The sin says, I'm a baptized man. How dare you? How dare you approach me? And by that he meant, I knew what baptism means. He was baptized as an as a infant. And he carried that baptism with him, the name of God upon him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he knew that as a baptized man, that by faith in Jesus, he was united to all that was true and that the evil one could not touch him. And we come to this table. We know that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. and After giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Don't pick up your little package yet. I hear them. Don't miss this. I know you know what's happening. I know you know what's going to happen. Don't miss this. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. This declaration is necessary, used by Jesus to keep us. The declaration is that we know that he's come, that he's given himself for us, that he's the propitiation for our sins, that there's no case against us in heaven, that if the evil one or anyone accuses us and it comes even to the throne of God, that Jesus receives that and turns to his father and literally says, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. That our sins have been nailed to the cross and pardon, erased. Thrown as far as the east is from the west, put in the bottom, the deepest part of the sea, all metaphors, simply to say, you can't find them. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He can't touch us. Robert Murray McShane Preacher died young, but left a big imprint in the 19th century upon his fellow Scotsman and even lives today in many of our minds as we read him. He said of this passage, you can't rest until you know this. You can't rest until you know that you're being kept by Jesus, I simply ask you, what do you know? Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that this we would know. 
that we are kept by Jesus and that the evil one can't touch us. So I pray, God, that you would help us now with this bread and this juice and that you would take it in in such a way that we would know that we're in the presence of Jesus, that he is alive, that he's risen, that he rules and reigns, and that he intercedes for us. Even in this moment, whatever may be going through our minds, in this moment, he intercedes for us. He defends us. He knows our name. So please, I pray, strengthen our assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.